The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green. I'm Mike Leone here with Colin Drew of DailyRoto.com to bring you this week's breakdown of uh, Daily Fantasy Golf. We've got the Genesis Open at the Riviera Country Club. It was previously uh, Riviera hosted the Northern Trust Open in 2016 and prior. So if you're doing research for that, keep that in mind. But uh, Colin, uh, before we get into a recap of last week before we get into who you should play this week. Do want to note to everyone that we've got a really good deal going on at dailyroto.com where you are able to try out our projections, which are powered by Data Golf for free for this week for the Genesis Open. So you want to go to dailyroto.com slash big cat for access to that. We've got so much cool stuff in the product. We've got, of course, our base projections for DraftKings and FanDuel that have some customizable aspects to them that have an optimized aspect uh, we've also got a finish probability model we got some cool betting stuff too which you can use the finish probability model to see good top 20 good win probability bets but we've got this new head-to-head betting tool which is really neat why don't you tell us a little bit about that yeah this tool is awesome one of the things i love about working with the data golf guys is uh just you know their ability to kind of innovate and turn out some of these products really quickly and the head-to-head betting tool lets you instantly simulate the win and tie odds between any two golfers in the field over a single round. And then they've also put in a section where you can type in, you know, the, the Vegas odds, like whether or not it's plus 140 or minus 160 or minus 130, whatever the odds are in the given matchup. And it will spit back to you whether or not it's a profitable bet. So I know a lot of times, you know, we're looking at some, if you're making these golf bets, you're looking at the odds and you're trying to guess whether or not that seems like it's a nice price. And this lets you put a little math behind it. So, I like that a lot. I know we've been utilizing this on a weekly basis for the last little bit here, and I I like that um, we can kind of crunch out this stuff pretty quickly now. And obviously, if you disagree with the probabilities, you can just kind of tweak things uh, from there. So I think that's uh, a really cool thing. And I think the other great aspect of the product in general is just that we have a probability and sort of an odds-driven model in addition to a fantasy model, which takes into account all of the birdies and bogeys and stuff. And I really have been using both of those on a weekly basis to try to, you know, whether it's using the made cut odds to try to figure out low price value guys on DraftKings or using the fantasy projections to kind of figure out who's a better DraftKings scorer. I think having two models there is definitely better than one. Yeah, and I'd also point out with this free trial, you get access to our Slack chat, which is a lot of fun. You can talk strategy when you're lineup building late Wednesday nights. You can also uh, tilt and sweat your golf throughout the weekend and yell at people who don't make the cut or flip out on Charlie Hoffman when he withdraws as he did for me last week. And Colin, that's was one of uh, the biggest reasons why I lost money last week playing DFS golf is I had a lot of Charlie Hoffman exposure and uh, that was an issue. I did in my single entry 
GPP. I went very contrarian. I was the only one with Brandon Grace in a hundred man field in a tournament. I was happy with that. I, I faded Dustin Johnson at 50% owned. So I was happy with the ownership percentages I got, but, uh, some of the chalk came through, you know, DJ, even though he didn't win, he came in second, had a really good score in terms of DraftKings scoring. Rafael Cabret Bello, who was chalk and someone we liked a lot, had a pretty good DK scoring, even though he, I ended up, I think, just outside of the top 20. How did you do last week? Yeah, it was a good week. The main slate was pretty good to me. The weekend slate was even better. I feel like in general this year, the weekend slates have been awesome from a profitability perspective. And I know we talked about it on the podcast last week, but there was going to be a nice edge for the weekend golf because the cut was after the Saturday round to T60 and ties. And uh, one of the things we saw was 45% of the field didn't get six of six golfers through the cut in the weekend event. So half of the field was missing half of the rounds from their players, and that created a really nice edge. And um, I was down quite a bit going into Sunday, but all my golfers were still playing, and I made up ground really fast and closed down. So it was great for weekend golf. I hope they continue to push those contests. It looks like they're setting up maybe for a big weekend golf on the Masters weekend. So I would definitely recommend trying to get involved and learn the weekend golf game now because it'll it'll pay off, you know, when some of these bigger contests roll around. And, of course, uh, we had a surprise in, you know, the real tournament there with Ted Potter holding off Dustin Johnson. I know a lot of people felt like DJ was an absolute lock to win heading into the the final round, but uh, Data Golf, who powers our projections, actually only had him at about 45 to 50% favorite, and Potter was able to hold him off and get that victory. Dustin Johnson, of course, has great course history this week uh, at the Riviera Country Club in LA, and he's going to be very popular once again. And uh, we saw at this course, we've seen the average round projected at 0.7 strokes above par. So somewhat, uh, I don't want to say difficult scoring environment, but I know early in the year, especially like when we were in the Hawaii trend there, we had a lot of easier scoring environments that were projecting below par. This one's slightly above par. It's a par 71 course measuring at 7,300 plus yards. We've got three par fives. The first hole is easily gettable. Had 30 plus eagles last year. Uh, the other two par fives are much longer, but still reachable by the longest guys. And we've got some short par fours here as well. Uh, so uh, Colin, given uh, the course setup here and the, and the format, are there any particular skill sets that you're looking to take advantage of? Yeah, I think if it's the first time you're kind of listening to this podcast, you'll you'll know or you won't know that uh, the data golf model is really powered by long-term adjusted round scores, short-term adjusted round scores, and then a tiny bit of a weight for course history. And so really not looking into statistics as much as it is uh, the golfer's fantasy performance and their round scores and finding that sometimes course fit stuff can uh, be a little narrative driven and sometimes you're better off uh, as far as you know, predicting a full field, you're better off using some of the, the macro stats. But I do think it is fun to kind of break down a course and think about some of the different skill sets. And one of the things that we've provided up on the website is a course history data viz that lets you see for all of the previous events here, uh, not just the finishing positions, but also how those golfers broke down into a bunch of the strokes gain categories. And looking at some of the leaders, uh, a couple of things that jumped out to me was really strong off the tee play. Um, and in general, you're always going to need strong tee to green, but it seemed like maybe a little bit of an off the tee heavy week, uh, more so than most. Like you had mentioned, in this year is the Genesis Open. That was the same as it was last year, but previously the Northern Trust Open was being played at Riviera. And so if you're going to dive into that, those are kind of the statistics and the courses that you would look at for different years. 
I think just generally these are some of the tougher to hit fairways on tour, but it is something that we have seen. It's not that penalizing if you miss the fairways. And that's, uh, I think, one of the reasons that you've seen some guys um, in the past flash up on the leaderboards who aren't always the most accurate players, guys like Bubba Watson, J.B. Holmes. Um, obviously, DJ is long and straight, which is the deadly combination. And that's why you saw, you know, last year when he was battling with Thomas Peters, you kind of saw that play out. But um, in general, I think maybe a slight lean to driving distance, but uh, I'm not going to, you know, cross off guys just because they're accurate and don't hit the ball quite as far. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the way I look at it is uh, when you're looking at the long-term adjusted scoring average and the default projections that Data Golf does for us on DailyRoto.com is they're, they're doing the bulk of the work. They're doing the really heavy lifting for you, but uh, there's still going to be room for nuance in the projections. Uh, you don't want to get too tied down to the exact projection and the course fit. That's where that comes in and helps you uh, filter through. So if a guy on the initial default projections is a top five value and another guy's uh you know, outside the top 50 values, that top five guy, you, you know, you're not going to find anything in course fit to make that top five guy worse than the guy outside the top 50. You've got two guys in like the 15 to 20 range. Uh, that's where you might use the course fit to really help differentiate yourself. And uh, Colin, I, I know we only have course history as 5% of the default weighting in those projections. And uh, you had noted how you have to be careful with, at looking at the course history correctly, uh, given the change in event here at Riviera. Uh, but DJ, monster course history. We've got a few guys here that have some really strong course history. Yeah, I, and I mean, DJ, it's monster course history. It's monster current form. Uh, it, you know, he's top-ranked golfer in the world, so it's going to be really hard to find a reason to get away from him uh, besides ownership. I know that in his past several years at, at this event, or this course, rather, he's got a win, four, a second, a second, a miscut, a four, a miscut, a three. So, I mean, inside the top five, basically, at any time he seems to be playing the weekend here, is going to be really tough to get away from. And obviously, each of his last five events, he's been inside the top 15 as well, with a win and two second place finishes over that time. So from a fantasy perspective, you know, it's pretty obvious. He's the deserving favorite. He's, you know, the favorite in the odds model. He's the favorite in the fantasy model. Uh, The only real question I think we can get into that as we, you know, a little bit later when we go into the price range is going to be the ownership. Uh, Some of the other guys that stood out to me as having course history, I mentioned J.B. Holmes earlier, but he's made 10 of 11 cuts here with four top 10s. Adam Scott is a guy that um, has made eight of nine cuts with four top tens. He is definitely not playing in his peak form right now as far as how we might think about him usually. Uh, but his, when his game is on, he's played this course really well. And then Phil Mickelson and Bubba Watson are two other guys that kind of stood out. Uh, Phil and Bubba have both won at this event twice. Bubba's a little bit more erratic. He's missed the cut a bunch of times, whereas Phil's uh, been inside the the top 10 a little bit more consistently, making the cut a little bit more consistently. But I think when you kind of look at those players, you know, when they're on, they're definitely really strong um, off the tee players who have adequate distance and kind of fits into what I was talking about a bit earlier. Obviously, either like it just to me, it goes to show that maybe you can get away with some of the, the Aaron T shots a little bit more because, the fairways are tough to hit, so maybe everyone's going to be missing them, and it's better to be 30 in the rough than it is 260. 
Yeah, and I know you mentioned there that not only does DJ have the, the monster course history, but he's got the recent form, he's got the long-term form, and I found it really interesting in our finish probabilities model this week that there there's a clear gap uh, we have between him and then the other expensive guys being Jordan Spieth at $11,300, Roy McIlroy at $11,100, Justin Thomas at $10,700, Johnson, uh, of course, up top there at eleven nine. So he is meaningfully more expensive, but it's not a huge gap. And a lot of weeks what happens is I'll defer to the pricing and I'll just try and get the most value up top because I view all these guys as elite golfers, all that can win. But uh, clearly the model is showing here that there's a delineation to be made between DJ and everybody else. Yeah, and that's definitely something that's interesting at the top. And I think the other thing to kind of comment if you haven't used the fantasy model or the probabilities for the first time is, I think one of the great things is is it, there's no bias in it, so it, it's purely kind of a, a math-based exercise to try to simulate the entire fields. Um, but there's obviously things that you need to think about that could matter, like a golfer's injury is not going to be something that you can possibly take into account in a projection-based model. And so it's not the type of thing where you should just like click the buttons and run the lineups. Like You should be thinking about these things and trying to apply some layer of judgment over the top of that. I know one of the guys that, for me, like I'll be thinking a lot about as the week goes on is Charlie Hoffman, who withdrew from, as, as you know, or all too familiar with, he withdrew from the event last week uh, with a back injury and it, you know, trying to understand if that's something that's lingering or if that's something that is completely clear. And, you know, I guess like if, you know, somebody is a standout value, then I might be willing to take a gamble on them. But if somebody seems like they might be hurt and there's a bunch of pivots, then I might want to cap my exposure a little bit more. And that makes a ton of sense. And you talk about uh, looking at the projections in the prism of some other information, not just a pure projection. And the thing we see with Dustin Johnson in our initial room, the ownership projections, which uh, you're in charge of at Daily Roto. So you're the guy we yell at when uh, they're off by just a little bit. And DJ right now projected at 29%, uh, you know, a good chance that gets pushed even higher as we refine the ownership projections throughout the week. And, you know, it, it's a difficult decision to be made in tournament formats how do you mesh that really high ownership percentage with the fact that he's the best play you know in the field from both a raw total perspective but even from a value perspective he's right up there when you account for his really large salary there's a lot of good values in the 7k 8k range this week which we'll talk about a bit later on which make it you know not that difficult to pay up for dustin johnson so i know for me last week in the higher stake single entry type tournament smaller field he was 50% and i was really happy that i faded him at 50% because you got day and speed at half the ownership you had rory and rom at about a quarter of the ownership and i just don't think that you know dj even though we have him as clearly the best play the gap isn't that wide this week the setup's a little different you throw in the the huge course history that he's had, how successful he's been here. And again, the, the ease at which you can fit him in and the, the fade or not conversation is tougher. And I do know it's interesting. We talked about at, at the top of the show, the new head to head betting tool, but you can also use that in a sense for your game theory stuff. And I looked at Rory versus DJ and has about a 10% probability. Those two tie about a 50% probability that DJ has a better uh, tournament than Rory, and then about a 40% chance that Rory does better. So the gap there's only about 10 points. Uh, and if the ownership percentage is going to be, 
you know, triple on DJ. Uh, do you think Rory makes for a better play in single entry three max type tournaments? And I think part of it, uh, it's a great question. I think part of it also depends on how you optimize or how you think about yourself from a fantasy performance perspective. I put out a poll the other uh, week or the other day that basically was trying for PGA DFS. Are you kind of looking at your results over a year, over six months, over three months, or over like one week as far as when you're thinking about whether or not you're a successful PGA DFS player? And I think generally people like the right thing to do is take a longer term approach to things and not get too bogged down by the variance that can happen on a weekly basis. But it's pretty easy when you start to think about your roster decisions to instead think about like what is going to put me at risk of losing money this week. And a fade of DJ is certainly going to put you at risk of losing money this week. Uh, that's actually what we would expect to happen, right? Because we have him higher rated. He's, you know, going to carry heavy ownership and he's the most likely golfer to win this tournament. So when that happens, you're going to lose money if you fade him. And what you're trying to understand though is like on those weeks where he doesn't perform well or he happens to get beat because somebody else outperforms him. So I think that was kind of what happened last week and why a DJ fade was not uber successful. But if you did it to get onto someone like Day who did the same thing at a cheaper price, then I think you were able to win some money in GPPs. Um, I think that if Rory is 10% owned and DJ is 30 or 35% owned, you're basically getting three and a half to one in the DFS world on Rory beating DJ. And like you mentioned in the head to head probabilities tool, like DJ is definitely not a three to one favorite. If you look at any of the sports book head to head matchups that are posted, there's no chance you're going to get Rory plus 300 versus DJ. You know, you might get plus 150 or something like that if you're lucky. Um, so I think it seems like if that type of dynamic held, that fading DJ would be long term the most profitable move you can make, even though you'd probably be likely to lose money this week. Yeah. And I do want to note that was actually the uh, one round probabilities there not not for the whole tournament just to to clarify there but you do still see where three three and a half to one is going to be really good odds on rory but you're just like any underdog bet you're not going you're playing that over the long run to to capitalize on the expected value that you're getting over the short run you're actually more likely to lose than you are to win it's just it's a long-term strategy type of play and uh, i found the the dynamic that you mentioned about where, okay, do you want to put all your money at risk by fading DJ completely on the week, or do you want to take the the highest upside type play? I mix and match a little bit in my single entry three max type tournaments. I've just found the ownership there, especially as you move up in stakes, it gets condensed on the chalkier guys just seem to get chalkier. Uh, and even up top, that happens a lot. Whereas when you're in these larger field tournaments where people have multiple entries, they kind of spread out their bets up top. So what I did last week was in the single entry, I went very contrarian. And I think again, this week you could do that and fade DJ. But then if you're multi-entering in a large field tournament where people are spreading things out a bit more, uh, you're not getting the same leverage that you would. And I think that's a situation where, okay, I can still get my Dustin Johnson exposure at a more reasonable ownership. 
Yeah, and obviously it's a very complex topic. It's fun to think about because the the prize structure is different too. You know, we're kind of talking about things as if it's either win a GPP or bust, and obviously that's not the case. You can min cash, you can come in the, you know, you can double up, you can come in the top, you know, fifth percentile. All these different range of outcomes, and uh, it's definitely going to vary when if you're playing the top heavy forty four dollar with a hundred k to first. Like the right way to approach that is probably a little bit different. Than a GPP with a smaller, you know, field that pays out 10% of the prize pool to first place. So all of that is what I think makes DFS so fun um, and so complex. And the other thing that is interesting is uh, we've had now two weeks in a row where I felt like there was a very clear favorite as far as who was going to carry the highest ownership in the field. Two weeks ago we had Hideki Matsuyama, and last week we had DJ. Well, Matsuyama ended up going off at 12% ownership. And I'm curious if, you know, everyone stuck with DJ because the week before they felt like Matsuyama was going to be chalk and he wasn't and they wish they had just played him. Or if it's just this comfort level that people have with DJ that they didn't have with Hideki. So we have them projected around 30%. It's hard for me to see myself projecting ownership any lower than that. But as as people, you know, move forward in the week, are they going to start having these same type of thoughts and like, is there a chance that in some tournaments that people will move off of DJ thinking that he will be the obvious play and he'll end up lower owned than we have projected? Absolutely. The power of observation. All right. You're listening to Going for the Green, sponsored by DailyRoto.com. Uh, as we talk about Dustin Johnson up top, uh, let, let's put some more context in that in the frame of overall roster construction on this week. You know, we already know DJ's got a huge edge. Uh, of the expensive golfers. And I do think in cash games, paying up for him makes a lot of sense. And it really makes a lot of sense to pay up for one sort of stud because the best values that we have uh, on the data golf projections are a lot of guys in the 7K, 8K range that you can make work with one stud. And the way they determine values by simulating a large percentage of tournaments and then seeing which guys are more often filling the best lineups in within all of those simulations. And then they give each guy a score. They standardize it so that the average value of all the golfers in the field is zero. So just to give some meaning behind that when we're talking about value, it's basically the likelihood that your golfer is going to be in the best lineup. And um, what makes this week interesting is, yes, you can afford DJ pretty easily with these values that you have at the 8K range, at the 7K range, but there's a pretty big drop-off uh, in the low 7K range and the sub-7K range that there is somewhat of an edge if you were able to go a bit cheaper off DJ to a Justin Thomas, to a Rory McIlroy. Uh, that last golfer or two could look a lot better, or you might be able to get some more of the mid-high eight golfers. So we'll get into what those specific values are in a bit. But uh, I know we talked Rory versus DJ up top, though. You've also got Jordan Spieth at 11-3, Justin Thomas at 10-7. Uh, what are your interests in these guys? I think I'm mostly interested in Rory and Spieth over Justin Thomas. I think there's enough of a gap in the fancy projections that we have over at Daily Brogo. Um And... The, the pricing, it seems like there's enough value to that this, the $400 or so between these guys doesn't make a huge difference this week as far as crushing the rest of your roster. One of the ways that I like to anchor my decisions for this range is to try to look at the T20 probabilities that we have and compare them to the ownership projections. And it seems like, um, at least early on this week, Spieth and Rory are standing out as good tournament plays in some of the top heavy formats. Uh, just based on the ownership discount you're getting while still kind of having 
a, a strong um, probability to finish inside the top 10, the top five, or even win the event. So I, I definitely think that when we're talking about a course that sets up really well for DJ, it should also set up for Rory. Obviously, uh, Rory did not play as well last week, uh, missing the cut, but he was in good form over in Europe. And so I'm not going to just write him off based off of one down week. And Spieth, um, you know, his putting definitely was something that struggled earlier this season. But again, you know, we we only have two rounds of shot link data from the event last week. But again, he was showing positive strokes gained tee to green and his putting kind of bounced back a little bit in the right direction. So I think those are good signs. And um, for me, it's, it's hard for me to uh, the way I play, I'll probably end up playing all three of these guys, but if I had to pick just one, I feel like I would get a little more risk-seeking and probably go with Spieth or Rory over DJ um, and just, you know, really playing for the first-place position versus playing for the min-cash. Yeah, I, I think so as well, where I differentiate. I, I like Justin Thomas a bit more than Jordan Spieth, and I, I think it just comes down to roster construction where uh, I know it's not that much cheaper, but just messing around with some of the lineups you can build with Thomas. You know, maybe I'm not accounting enough for the drop-off in our projection to Justin Thomas, but I really, really like the lineups that you can build around JT this week. But let's move on to the 9K range, the, the mid-high tier, so to speak. And this is a range that doesn't pop very much from a value perspective. So uh, one thing, I you know, I talked with Pat Mayo on the DraftKings Golf Show this week, and my big thing here in this range was uh, I want – everyone that I play in this range to be sub 15% ownership, ideally around 10% ownership, because I don't think the optimal way to build is to use a guy in this range. I think it's more of a game theory play. So if you're going to use a guy in this range and he's chalk, I just feel like you're not getting leverage and you're building suboptimally. Uh, so that that's not something that I'm too interested in doing really in any format this week. But the guy that I do like the most in this tier right now is Daniel Burrier at $9,200. We've got a recent strokes gained tool on our site and three tournaments in a row burger has been really consistent gaining strokes off the tee yeah he definitely has been um, one of the guys we kind of glossed over a little bit but actually has a t20 probability that's greater than rory is paul casey who i know there's a lot of narrative that he can't close an event um, who knows whether or not some of that is true obviously golf's a mental game but i think a lot of times we're more inclined to believe that uh, just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't in the future. And he is a really strong person if you're building more balanced cash game lineups and you don't want to pay up. I think, you know, if you build teams off of our T20 odds, he pops in there. Uh, Berger seems like he's going to be an, a nice contrarian play this week. I think kind of comparing the probabilities that we have there with a ownership projection that is sub 10% right now, he gives you a nice little bit of a leverage score. And then a couple of the other guys that I have some interest in. Um, so if you're building with DJ teams, I think a lot of times the next place to go is to hit up the low 8K range or the high 7K range with someone like Thomas Peters. And so that could leave a little bit of low ownership on the upper 8K range. So Pat Perez, Mark Leishman, Matt Kuchar, um, and Tony Finau are guys that I think have nice – comparisons of their top 20 probabilities and their upside with their current ownership projections. 
Uh, I'd agree. I, I did want to go back to the Casey point that you made real quick because I think it's a, a good representation of why it's interesting and neat to have two different models where our finished probability model is purely looking at, you know, the, the adjusted scoring averages and based off that, the probabilities of certain events does take into account the volatility of the golfers as well. But Casey rates really well there, you know, with the third best to win odds because his adjusted scoring averages are so good. Whereas the fantasy model that's, you know, and, and both of these models are taking into account field strength, uh, they're taking into account course difficulty and everything, but he doesn't rate as strongly in the fantasy model because we haven't seen a ton of those top end finishes from him. And I, I think it's neat to mesh uh, those two together. It, it's something that's really cool. But uh, ultimately for Casey, I feel like Kucher, a guy you mentioned, I feel like that's that's an $1,800 cheaper uh, Casey for me is a really safe guy to build your cash game lineups around him and Leishman really stick out Leishman's price has dropped from the beginning of the season and we were playing him when he was in the 9k's so I think he's once again a really good option and even you know yes there's that contrarian way of building that you were mentioning where uh, all those 7k guys could result in these 8k guys being under own and for now someone who was I think he was fourth and off the tee last year, strokes gained, uh, which is you know really phenomenal. A guy with huge distance, and that's one of the things we're looking at. Uh, he's usually chalk, and I don't think we're going to get him at chalk. But it's also interesting for builds where you don't want to be super contrarian, but you don't want to be like DJ chalk. I think that's where like the my allure for Justin Thomas comes in, where I can play Kucher, I can play. Leishman in the same lineup as JT and not have to sacrifice on the low end. Whereas if you're playing DJ, you're likely only getting one of those guys. Yeah. And I definitely think that is, is one of the more interesting ways to go. And obviously one of the most successful weeks you had the other week, uh, when you took down the $1,500 GPP and DraftKings was going with that balance contrarian style. Um, I mean, I feel like it's almost embarrassing. I feel like we're so data-driven that we just totally glossed over the fact that Tiger Woods is back in the field yeah, as a event. <laughs> we, we need to talk big cat. I mean, our, our promotion this week, the free trial, dailyroto.com slash big cat. Uh, we need to talk about big cat. $8,800 does not pop in the model at all. Uh, looks like a, a negative value uh, on first run. But the difficult part with Woods, of course, Colin, is... The long-term scoring averages the past few years, you know, he hasn't been healthy. He's been in and out. And I know we've been tempted a few times to say, okay, this time he's he's back. This time it's different. Well, uh, it really does look like this time it, it might be different. He's played pretty well. I know it felt like he was getting lucky in the last tournament that he played. Uh, we didn't have the shot link data for all four of his rounds. and We had it for three, but he actually did gain strokes two to green, even though it didn't feel like it. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things was a lot of his ball speed and club speed was back um, and his distance was there. And so he was spraying the ball a little bit, but the strokes gained off the tee stats typically will reward somebody who is hitting the ball far, even if they're a little erratic, as long as they're not getting crazy and taking penalties and things like that. Um, and so I think some of the metrics disagreed a little bit with the narratives as far as what Tiger's strengths and weaknesses were in his first event back. Like we mentioned earlier, uh, it, it's a data-driven model, and we're not treating Tiger Woods any differently. So, you know, they're not taking into account his performance five years, ten years ago. Uh, it's really looking at, you know, his, his last two years and what he's been able to do. And obviously there is, you know, a, a big 
faction of people out there who think that or who think or hope that Tiger is going to come back full speed. And that's something that in our customized world projections, you can manually adjust Tiger Woods projection up if you feel that he's a strong play. It's, it's just for me, he's still too overpriced. He's a name that is still going to carry some ownership because there's enough people out there who really want to see him back and want to believe. And 8800 is a steep price. There's a bunch of golfers that I'd rather have, I think, I might have been able or willing to get on board with a little bit of a Tiger gamble if he was down in the low 7K range, I guess. Even 8K, I think I might have taken, you know, a chance here and there. But a few of the guys we mentioned as leverage plays, you know, with uh, Berger being only $400 more, Finau being $600 cheaper, and then just a straight up really strong plays in Leishman and Kucher being even cheaper than Tiger. It's tough. Uh, one other guy I wanted to mention this range, you know, I got Brandon Grace last week in a hundred man field. I got him at one percent ownership. So I was literally the only person who had him and his to win odds in our finished probability models were greater than one percent. So I just found that interesting and I feel like and again that's just evidence when you play in these smaller fields, the ownership gets really condensed. And you can find a guy here if you're willing to take a chance who might not fit optimal roster construction but has a legitimate chance to actually win the tournament and if you're the only person who has them or one of the few uh, that's just huge leverage you're definitely giving yourself a shot to win we did not have the shot link data for uh you know all of the tournament last week only at the rounds played at pebble but the two rounds that grace played at pebble uh, he was really really strong t to green so he's someone that uh, i'm keeping an eye on for tournaments he'll be in my uh, mass multi-entry mix although i do think in large field tournaments where people are multi-entering that's where his ownership then just naturally all these guys are going to start to creep up closer to 10 percent yeah, and some other guys, uh, I guess, dipping kind of the bottom of this range and pivoting a little bit into the next one, I think. Uh, Ches Revy and Brendan Steele are two guys that seem like they'll be popular as, I don't know if you call them stacks or co- correlated ownership with DJ, just because they're in this price range that really allows you to free some things up. If you go 12K up top and 8K, you know, all of a sudden you're not looking too bad with the sal- remaining salary for your four golfers. Uh, Ches, obviously... Finished second last week, second week in a row inside of the top five, second second place finish in a row. And he's been inside the top 25 now in nine of his last 10 events. And so we were still able to get him last week at fair ownership. Um, I think people weren't buying into the fact that his strong finish the week before uh, would continue. And he was a guy that the probability model liked a lot. And so part of the reason that I was able to get away with less DJ and some of the three max or single entry stuff than I might have otherwise was because of Day and Ches Revy both finishing tied for second place. He's another guy that our, the fantasy model likes him. Uh, they kind of have him and Brendan Steele right there neck and neck, but the probability model is a lot, lot higher on Ches Revy. And I think that um, that's one of the ways that I like to leverage both of the models is kind of if I was only going to play one of these guys, then I would probably be playing Ches at this point over Steele. Um, holding kind of the rest of the roster equal. You're listening to Going for the Green, brought to you by DailyRoto.com. And Colin, uh, let's look at the values in the 7K range because uh, this is where I'm having difficulty discerning uh, the plays and the fades because this 
tier, you know, in my opinion, is just absolutely loaded and it meshes well with the ability for you to grab multiple guys from this range and still, of course, afford a DJ or even if you're going a bit more contrarian with Rory, Spieth, or Justin Thomas, you can take advantage of the values in this range. The, the two that we like the most uh, off the bat are going to be uh, Francesco Molinari and Patrick Cantlay. Yeah, uh, I think those were some of the easier spots for us to predict when we first saw the pricing and it came out. Um, one was that Cantlay, I think we knew that the model would like him. We also felt in general that the industry as a whole would like him. And he's one of the guys that I think by the time the end of the week rolls around, uh, his ownership projection will be up a little bit higher than it is right now. One of the things that I found is early in the week, a lot of the things people like to talk about is some of the obvious spots with course history and with Peters finishing second last year. I think, you know, his name has been tagged a little bit more and I expect that some of that will revert back to Cantlay as the week goes on. And then Molinari is interesting because, uh, the DFS Albatross projections that we had last year obviously loved Molinari. And uh, the data golf projections like him almost as much, if not more so. Uh, he's, you know, one of those guys, top 25 ranked golfer in the world and somebody that made 22 of his 26 cuts on tour last year. And so I think he's someone that could go a little bit lower owned in some of the lower stakes stuff because he doesn't fit a lot of the narratives that people are talking about this week as far as driving distance. And he doesn't have a strong course history here. I don't have it in front of me, but I believe he's missed two out of his four cuts uh, and so I think that, you know, Cantlay is going to be one of those chalk players by the end of the week that maybe you'll hit like nine or 10% ownership, but I'll still want to play. Uh, whereas I think Molinari is going to end up probably flying under the radar, except in some of the higher stake stuff where people are kind of uh, Molinari fans like we are. And what I like most about both Cantlay and Molinari is these guys look really good. Even if you look at them in a variety of ways, of course, you know, maybe not that specific course fit or course history but in terms of adjusted scoring averages they both look really good and in terms of strokes gained off the tee both Cantley and Molinari in a small sample size this year are top 15 in strokes gained off the tee Molinari last year finished fourth in tee to green strokes gained which is really phenomenal you're getting this guy at such a low tag that yes he has this perception of lacking upside but uh, a made cut and you're breaking even on him a top 20 and, and you're already looking at profit especially if the ownership isn't going to be as high here. A couple of guys I do think will be higher owned. You mentioned Thomas Peters with the course history. And also Ali Schneider-Johns is a young golfer that the DFS community just seems to really, really be on. I like him. I'm a sucker for the Bombers. But I... I, and this is where I'm struggling too this week when I'm deciding my multi-entry mix is I do think Ali and Peters are going to be somewhat chalky in this group, maybe the highest owned golfers out of this group. But with so many options in this group, Colin, do you see the ownership disparity as something that's like we've got a set of guys who are like 18% and a set that are like 5% or is it more like, okay, some of these guys are 13% and some are 8% because at that point, the leverage you'd be getting from full fading or from taking underweight positions, you know, wouldn't be as strong. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. When I, when the pricing came out, I saw Peters there and I was like, okay, he's going to be popular this week based on what he did to the course last year. I did not expect this to happen with Ollie, but he's generated a ton of chatter, um, kind of in all the tout circles. And that's definitely something that influences ownership. And to, I mean, both of these guys seem like volatile guys that when they're playing at their worst can easily miss the cut. They're not kind of giving you that security blanket that you might 
have out of some of the high upside guys that also make a ton of cuts. And so my, my gut, like I, I have my biases as well. And I have my weeks where I've played Peters uh, and had, you know, really successful weeks, including the masters last year. And some of that plays in and it's hard to kind of wrestle yourself away from. I don't know if I've had Ollie on like his great weeks. And so um, for me, it's going to be a struggle. I think, like mathematically, when you look at our fantasy projections, our probabilities, the ownership projections, both Peters and Ollie seem like they should be full fades this week in tournaments. Um, Peters is going to be the harder one for me to actually pull the trigger on when it comes to building rosters. I just have like my own biases that he is the guy who has kind of more splits and he's going to do well at tracks that are more suited for bombers and um, I feel like his his upside's higher, but a lot of that stuff is kind of not supported by the data, and so uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'll end up doing there. Yeah, I do. Like, I want to play these guys because I like both of these guys. But same thing when you look at everything. I mean, really, you would describe Peters and Ali as GPP plays when you look at their volatility, both in terms of downside and in terms of upside. These are GPP plays, and my philosophy I try to stick to. Easier said than done, but when someone you would describe as a GPP play is the chalkiest of a, a group or a certain pricing segment, well, then you should probably be fading that player. And I think that's ultimately what happens with Peters and Ali. So I don't know if I can full fade, but there's just so the other thing, there's just so many pivots, so many options in this price range that uh, you're not sacrificing a whole ton. And one of the guys that we've got projected really low ownership that I want to get your thoughts on. I was surprised by is Morgan Keimer at sub 5% in the initial ownership projections. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that ownership projection is fair. Um, like you said, there's a bunch of guys in this range that you can make arguments for. A lot of the inputs into our model are the different kind of tout sediment rankings from FanshareSports.com. I definitely recommend checking them out if you don't already. They're an invaluable resource for me as far as making these ownership projections. Um, and then also just the, the odds, um, from the different sports books and, and other things. Um, so I think that the ownership projection there is fair. Uh, I think that like Cantley, even if he ends up call it 10, uh, 12% owned, I think he still is a positive value based on his probabilities and fantasy projections and someone I wouldn't fade. Whereas I think you make the argument to fade, you know, Peters and Ollie. I think that Keimer ends up being one of those guys that ends up as a strong uh, contrarian option for tournaments when you compare his T20 probabilities to his very low ownership projections that we have right now. And then some of the guys in the upper 7K ranges, you know, last week's chalk, Rafael Cabrera Bello at 7,700, still within our top 10 values. Again, this week, you've also got Kevin Chappell, who is, I think, $7,700 as well. And I was surprised that when I did Pat Mayo's show that he had some driving distance figures and he was talking about the top five guys that show up in a bunch of spots in terms of distance. And I think it was DJ, Rory, uh, Loop, Finau, and the surprise fifth guy in that grouping was Kevin Chappell, who you don't think of necessarily as a bomber. We've seen big upside from him. Uh, he's another guy, though, that's probably on the chalkier side of the 7K range. I wonder if people come off Rafa with uh, more opportunity costs this week and a little bit of a price hike might make him the better GPP play between those two guys. Yeah, I think he'd be an interesting tournament play. Obviously, scored really well from a DraftKings perspective last week, just couldn't avoid those big numbers. And so he ended up kind of falling off the leaderboard late. Um, 
I think he'll carry some ownership, maybe, you know, high single digits, maybe hit 10%, just because it's easy if you're making teams and you have Peters and then you're like, oh, I want to make this team again. And I'm going to put in Chapel instead of Peters. And then I'm going to put in RCB instead of Peters. And you just diversify off of these guys at the same price point. I think that's one of the ways that a lot of people will build lineups if they're making, you know, 20 plus lineups. Uh, we mentioned Charlie Hoffman a little bit earlier. He's going to be a guy that projects really strongly for us in the fantasy model and the probabilities model. Uh, a little bit of a, not a red flag, a yellow flag, I guess, with his injury risk having withdrew last week. But he does have strong course history here, made the cut nine of 11 events, uh, finished fourth last year, and hadn't missed a cut since 2011. Uh, so I think that he's uh, one of those guys that could end up being a good tournament play. I, I probably wouldn't go crazy overweight on him just with the risk, but I'll, I'll probably want to include him in you know, 15 20% of my lineups. Yeah, I also like Keegan Bradley. He's top 15 in strokes gained tee to green this year. In the lower 7Ks, of course, Molinari, who we love at 7,200. You've also got Charles Howell at 7,300. You know, the, the cut maker, I think he's made 78% of his cuts or something over, uh, the last few seasons. I think he's very safe that maybe you could even talk yourself to him in cash games, even though there's a lot of opportunity cost. Uh, Adam Scott, 7,400. I think he's the last guy before we start dipping into the deep 7K guys. Um, because I do think there's a huge drop off when you move past Molinari at 7,200, where the 7,100 guys are a bit riskier. But before we get those, just want to get your quick thoughts on Scott, who's got good course history. Long term, we know, uh, he's one of the better golfers in the world, but poor form last year. This year, you didn't think it could get much worse than last year. And sure enough, it, it seems like it has gotten worse, at least in, in a pretty small sample. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that 2016 data is is carrying him right now, that's for sure. Um, one of the guys that I would not be comfortable with in cash games just with uh, the data from last year and not really showing, like, a ton of upside um, as far as his results last year. And so you're kind of taking on some unknown, maybe some risk. Maybe I, I guess that's me being a little bit biased and feeling like his short-term form should be weighted a little bit heavier but um, if he carries low ownership in tournaments, then I think he's worth kind of a sprinkle there because he does project pretty well. And then the last guy that I think kind of fits the really strong TV green play narrative would be Lucas Glover at just 7,100, who um, should, should be a low-owned guy that I like in tournaments. Uh, I haven't been playing a little bit more cash this year, but um, I would say generally I'm a tournament player. So a lot of times when I'm talking about this, I'm thinking about it with a tournament mindset. Uh, Glover could be as low as, you know, one to 2% owned. He has terrible course history, but I think that his statistics and, um, you know, what he's done over the last two years on tour make him for a guy that you should be considering. Yeah, I definitely think he, he is there at 7,100, but as I, I think it was a pretty big drop off. So, you know, I'm going to make a lot of tournament teams where honestly I try and have you know, a lot of my tournament teams, whether I'm not sure the exact percentage, but maybe even half of them where I have every golfer in that lineup, $7,200 or more, just because I really think the skill drop off is that dramatic. But you do have Adam Hadwin, $7,100. Cam Smith is a guy that's likely going to carry pretty low ownership at $7,100 as well. Kyle Stanley as a, a guy who was pretty good tee to green struggles with the, the flat stick at 7k. And then when you dip into the sub 7k guys, I think, 
you know, you really want to spread out your exposures here. There's not a single guy I love. The safest guy seems to be Brandon Harkins, a guy our model's been on the last few weeks, and he's done pretty well. He is, a, you know, this last week with him is a really good anecdote, though, about the variance of golf and just how, you know, the reasons why you can take chances in tournaments. Because Harkins double bogeyed 16 on the third day of the tournament to go to plus three, dropped to about 64th place with top 60 making the cut. Looked like he was going to miss. You know, a few guys fell back. He ends up 60th, makes the cut on the number. And then he got as high as top 10 at one point on Sunday with a really strong Sunday. I think he finished top 20 overall. So you can just see the huge variance that cut line can be. You know, he went from should have made, should have missed the cut and would have not helped you at all to being a pretty important part of GPP teams. Yeah, and I definitely agree. You kind of mentioned that in general, it seems with the new pricing strategy at DraftKings that the optimal way is to build through the 7K range. There seem to be each week a couple of guys that are mispriced in that range and are present like high upside in addition to strong safety. So I think the the optimal way is probably to build through that 7K range. But obviously, if you want to load up up top, then you have to dip down here. I think Peter Uline is one of the guys that I had on my radar for tournaments at 2% ownership. It's an American who plays uh, on the European tour, but is also playing more in the U.S. Uh, this season. And he's a guy that is an okay value in the fantasy model, projected at 47 fantasy points, but got around 20% to finish inside the top 20 at 2% ownership. So that's something that's really interesting to me for tournaments. I would prefer him kind of one-on-one versus Harkins, who's going to carry like 10% ownership, even though the fantasy model likes Harkins a little bit more, uh, just because I think that the mid-cut probabilities based on Uline's adjusted scoring average are a little bit higher. Um, In general, this range seems like it's, it's a tough one. I think you know, Harkins, Uline, I think Bud Colley is someone that I would consider playing, but I don't know if I actually will when it gets down to it. And then there's like a ton of these names that I would just kind of cross off the wrist list as far as my overall builds. Yeah, Colley we've got with a 65% chance to make the cut, the best of the sub-7K golfers. Uline, you mentioned, has uh, the best T10 odds of the sub-7K golfers. So uh, Colley, Uline, and Harkins seem to be what our model prefers. But given just, yeah, the volatility of this range in general, uh, Harkins would be the fade in tournaments. And, uh, you know, that's what's difficult with that cash game roster construction with DJ is you've either got to take someone low that you're uncomfortable with or you got to bypass some of those uh, 8K to upper 7K type values that are pretty strong and have a lot of upside. So um, that's a really interesting aspect or wrinkle to this week. Uh, we're closing in near the end of the show, though, Colin. Uh, anything, you know, anywhere, whether it's a guy we missed uh, in this low, lower range or earlier up top or just a general strategy note that you have before we sign off? I think the big thing for me is uh, that I like to do is compare the fantasy projections, the top 20 odds and the ownership projections to come up with kind of a leverage score for these tournaments. You can definitely, it's a great week to try our product for free uh, over at dailyroto.com slash big cat and you, no credit card required. Just kind of enter your login info, password, sign up for the week, check it out. Hop in Slack. Uh, we'll be pushing ownership projection updates through Wednesday, and all of us will be around kind of Slack up until the contest lock, but we'll also be there all week kind of sweating our lineups. And know we had a bunch of good stuff going on in there last week, so it was definitely a, a fun time for rounding out the golf week. 
Yeah, Slackjack, can, it can be great for some strategy tidbits. It also uh, makes you feel part of a community when you're sweating the same guys missing the cut or when you've, you know, faded some of the guys everybody's on. You just kind of silent fist pump when that guy does poorly and hope uh, that guy misses the cut. But yeah, go over to dailyroto.com slash bigcat. We do have a completely free trial for this week. That's going to get you access to both the models that Collins has been mentioning, the finished probabilities model, the fantasy model that comes with an optimizer that has some unique features. You know, the ability to cap projected ownership helps you make tournament lineups when you're deciding those difficult fade or overweight uh, decisions and then the ability also to adjust the optimizer to give you a higher risk tolerance to give you those higher volatility type golfers is something that can really help you make tournament lineups and not just build optimals purely off of the default projections but that's going to do it for colin and i on this edition of going for the green brought to you by dailyroto.com thank you for tuning in best of luck this week and we'll see you next week